Welcome to the Pastor Nick Santo Podcast, a podcast designed to help you live closer to Jesus. We hope that God uses it to encourage and empower you in His plan for your life. Now let's get into today's content. We are in uh, Matthew's Gospel, Chapter 5. This is our last study in tools. Tonight we're going to talk about... um, the church and how God uses the church, that's you and I, as his tools. So tonight, not necessarily something that God uses uh, in our lives, but something that God uses our lives to accomplish concerning his purpose uh, in the world. So um, I remember uh, a very pivotal moment in my own life. It happened to me when I was 19 years old. It was actually on my 19th birthday. So it was New Year's Eve Uh, I believe it was 1998, and I was in Times Square. It was the only time in my life I will ever be in Times Square on New Year's Eve, (laughs) and uh, it was below zero. It was the coldest I have ever been in my life, and that was with alcohol and all the other things that I was doing at that time. Um, It was was just not a pleasant experience, but I remember um, the thing that stuck with me was that while we were there, and I'm not from New York City and um, had maybe visited here and there, but not familiar, but I saw uh, a homeless person um, laying on the side of the street uh, covered in cardboard and, 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 you know, everything else. And I remember at that moment, there was a voice that I heard. It wasn't, a, uh, it wasn't audible. I didn't hear it with my ears, but it was something that, that came from the inside uh, that was so loud. And it just said that this is the end of the path that you're on. And it struck me. It, it shook me. It stopped me. And I just stared for a moment at that as I realized the destination of the decisions that I was making at that period of my life, and that stuck with me. That did something. I didn't get saved that day. I did get saved within the next year, but I didn't get saved that day. Um, But something hit me where I realized that that the things that I did in my life uh, had consequences and outcomes, and that's always true. And I ask you this question tonight by way of introduction, and that is, uh, what would you do if you could see 10 years into your future from right now and you saw there at that point that your life was a total train wreck that that your life was just everything it was was messed up your marriage was messed up your kids were messed up uh your your financial situation was messed up your health was messed up just everything about your life was completely messed up in in 10 years if you could see it now i suggest that you would instinctually know automatically the things in your life that were heading or pointing you in that direction and that you would probably make some changes, right? Like if you saw it, you would stop and you would say, whoa, I need to put the brakes on because I'm going in a bad direction. Now, let me ask that same question, but frame it just a little bit differently and see if your response is the same. What if you could see a point in the future and there was a train wreck, but the train wreck that wrecked everything didn't happen until right after you died and it only affected your offspring and the kids that you left behind. So in other words, the disaster doesn't come in your lifetime, but it does affect those that you sired, those that come immediately after you, would you still have the same intensity of of reaction to change things in your life that might alter that outcome? 
That's a good question to ask yourselves. Would you do it if you knew it? If you knew it was devastating to your kids? And so I want to play for you a clip, and it's a few minutes long, but it's going somewhere, and you'll understand why after you see it. So if you just put your attention to the screens for just a minute, this is stuff that's going on right now on the West Coast. If there's no volume, it has no effect whatsoever. (laughs) Can you start it over, please? We have the three prongs of airborne disease, tuberculosis is exploding, rodent borne. We are one of the only major cities in the country does not have a rodent control program, and sanitation has broken down. We had a typhus outbreak last summer. We will have a typhus outbreak this summer. I'm nervous right now. We have the three prongs of airborne disease, tuberculosis is exploding, rodent borne. We are one of the only major cities in the country does not have a rodent control program, and sanitation has broken down. We had a typhus outbreak last summer. We will have a typhus outbreak this summer. I'm hearing from experts that bubonic plague is likely. It's already here. It will get onto the rat fleas. And then now, finally, we have this this oral fecal root contamination, which is typhoid fever. Three cases. One confirmed, probably three. This is unbelievable. I can't believe... I live in a city where this is not third world, Laura. This is medieval. Third world countries are insulted if they are accused of being like this. No city on earth tolerates this. The entire population is at risk. This story is about a seething, simmering anger that is now boiling over into outrage. It is about people who have felt compassion, yes, but who no longer feel safe, no longer feel like they are heard, no longer feel protected. It is about lost souls who wander our streets, untethered to home or family or reality, chasing a drug which in turn chases them. I drive my... uh... 12-year-old's carpool through Yesler uh, when we do carpool, and it's a good talking point about, you know, what they're seeing, what we can do to help, you know, how we can make a difference, and honestly, at this point, I don't have a good answer for how we can make a difference. The last five to ten years, it's not the place that I grew up in, and it's been really sad. Matt Campbell lives and works in Seattle. He's raising a family, and like many others, He's mad. It's uh, it's gotten to a point where I'm embarrassed of it. I, I don't want to have my friends and family come here anymore. People didn't used to use the word embarrassing about Seattle. But if you listen closely, you'll hear it a lot now. You know, it, it's embarrassing. It, this, is, this is one of the most beautiful regions in the entire world. And right now, with lack of a better word, it looks like shit, And it's embarrassing. No Robert's Last May 2nd at a town hall meeting in Ballard, simmering anger boiled over into all-out rage. So why do we see so many people living outdoors? Will you manage these camps and will you enforce the law? There has evolved a profound disconnect and rarely has it been more vividly laid out than in this exchange. If property crime is committed, violence is committed, you need to call 911 and the police... You've lost all credibility when you say... You said two words. You said, call 911. Do you understand that the police have told us to vote you all out so that they can do their jobs? And you're telling us... Oh, 
Seattle police are afraid to speak out. For two years, we've tried to get cops to talk about what they see every day, about what's really happening on the streets and behind the scenes. More than once, the word terrified was used. Cops are terrified of losing their jobs and pensions, terrified of retaliation. Then you walk down the street and you see a wretched soul like this, consumed by demons, maybe madness, maybe both. This is what suffering looks like. This is pain. Ranting and raving, screaming silently, coming completely unraveled before our eyes. And then tomorrow, he'll wake up and relive the nightmare all over again. Starving, eating trash from a garbage can. Look at the people walk by. Of course they're not shocked. How could they be? They see it every day. How can this be who we are? How can this be what we allow? How did the word compassion get twisted into this sickening reality? The Puget Sound Business Journal estimates that Seattle and its outlying areas spend $1 billion addressing and responding to the homeless situation every year. And they say that number is almost certainly underestimated. Nonprofits, city and county budgets, police calls to homeless camps, hospital services, building tiny houses, drug treatment and outreach. Picking up needles, clearing out camps, garbage details, chain link fencing. And the more money we throw at the problem, the worse it gets. But of course, what is happening in King County and on the streets of Seattle isn't about dollars. It's about human lives. How can this be the right thing to do? How can watching human beings live and die in filth and degradation and madness be right? The cost isn't a billion dollars a year. The cost is quality of life. The cost is people not wanting to take their families downtown anymore. Families not feeling safe in their own neighborhoods. The cost is people no longer feeling like they are hurt, no longer feeling protected. The cost is people dying in the streets and the rest of us getting used to seeing it, numb to the suffering. The cost is incalculable. How did we get to this point? I I love the way that ends is how did we get to this point how did we get here and uh, that's always the question that needs to be asked and and so the message tonight the title of the message tonight is not how did we get here but you are here that this is where we are right now not there and and i and just in case you you miss the context um this has nothing to do directly with the homeless situation out there it's the living situation uh that's going on on the west coast that i just wanted to to put before you and i wanted you to see it the text uh for the study tonight uh in relation to this is from matthew chapter 5 it's right from the sermon on the mount it's something that jesus said um, and he addressed it to us, and he spoke these things. So if you would look with me at, at Matthew chapter, 13, uh, chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus said this. He said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost his savor, then wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Now, the salt, he says, is us. And he says the thing that is to be salted is the earth. And he says that the salt can lose its savor or its potency or its quality. 
and that when that happens, the earth is good for nothing. The earth is good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot, that it goes to complete waste. And then Jesus goes on in verse 14, and he says that you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it gives light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Now, the you that Jesus talks about in the passage when he opens it up and he says that you are the salt of the earth, and then again in verse 14 when he says you are the light of the world, he is addressing, first of all, to the people that were there in front of him directly, but indirectly he was speaking forward to a group of people that actually didn't really even exist yet. It's a group of people that you and I are, we're called the church. The church, in the days before Jesus Christ, didn't exist. In the days before Christ, God related to the world through a nation, an entity called Israel, that he raised up in the world in a particular spot, and it was through them that he made himself known unto the world. But when Jesus came... Jesus spoke of something to his disciples that he was going to institute that was yet future. He said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he said that upon the rock of his death and resurrection, he would build this thing that was called the church. And so the church, this new entity, is not a nation and it's not a geographical location but rather it's something that transcends race and location and gender and class and language. And it's something that can exist anywhere where the people of God are, and it can include anyone with a pulse. And it is the church that Jesus built that now is the entity through which God relates to the world. And so the foundation of the church is the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the way we get in. We come to a relationship with God through the offering of his son on the cross and the spirit of God comes into our life as our sins are forgiven and we become a part of the capital C church, this body of Christ. Now, that's the foundation. The fruit of the church or the value of the church is in what we possess. And the Bible tells us what that is in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. And it's summed up this way. It says that uh, Paul writes, and he says this to his young uh, protege, Timothy. He says, but if I tarry long, that you may know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, listen, which is the church of the living God. And here it is. This is the value. This is, this is the fruit of the church. It says that it is the pillar and the ground of the truth. And so the value, the fruit, what we hold is that we hold truth. And he basically says that there's two elements to that. Number one is that it is the ground, and number two, it is the pillar. And so the ground is something that we stand on. And so if the ground is truth, then where we stand is on truth. That's our position. That's our foundation. It's where we stand. But it's not just the ground. It is also the pillar. And so if the pillar is truth, what does that mean? What does a pillar do? A pillar holds something up. And so where we stand is on the truth, and what we hold up is the truth. That's what we have. Now, that relates to what Jesus would call our function, because what Jesus says is the function of the church is he says that we are salt, 
And so that's what we are, and it relates to where we stand. And he also said that we are light, which means that's something that we hold up. And so we stand upon his truth, and we hold up the light that gives vision, and that is the function of the church. Now, what is salt, and why does Jesus say that you are the salt of the earth, or the church is the salt of the earth? What salt does is that salt preserves and restores freshness, and salt fights infection. Why do we gurgle with salt water when we feel like we're catching something, maybe strep throat or, or, or a bacterial thing? Because we know that salt will kill, it will change the environment where, whereby bacteria cannot spread, it cannot proliferate. And so salt preserves and restores freshness and it fights infection. That's why Jesus said that if the salt loses its savor, then the earth becomes good for nothing. It's just, it can be trodden underfoot because sin is just going to run rampant. It's going to run wild. The whole thing is going to break down and it's just going to become wasted. And so salt is necessary in the environment where there is the bacteria of sin. He also says that we are light. What does light do? Light gives vision. It gives perspective. It gives clarity. It gives direction. Light demands attention because it's shining on something with the intent of either exposing it for what it is or revealing where to go. And so we appreciate light because we appreciate being able to see where we're going and knowing where we are. And Jesus says that the function of the church in the world is that we are salt that prevents decay because of sin, and we are light that gives people perspective and vision as to what's going on and what is the right way to go. And so when we talk about the church as a tool in the hand of God, it's a twofold thing that God wants to use the church to do, to be salt, that is to preserve, and to be light, that is to give direction. So What does this mean, this whole idea of being salt? Now, I firmly believe that we in Dutchess County, we have a a, a uniquely blessed situation. I mean, we really lead a very, very good life, you know, by and large. I know we have our problems. I know that there are issues. I know that not everyone is doing well all of the time. But by and large, we enjoy an amazing quality of life here. And I credit that to a number of things. I think that there are a a, a whole bunch of healthy churches and healthy Christians in Dutchess County. I thank God for Pastor Bobby and for Calvary Chapel of the Hudson Valley and just the, the existence of this church, what it represents here and what it has done for Dutchess County. The things that we as the body of Christ here are able to be involved in uh, that help, that, that are a light, that are a preserving influence in the culture that we live in. There are many other very strong and solid churches in Dutchess County. And I believe that part of the reason why we enjoy what we do is because of the strength of the churches and of the Christians. We also enjoy in Dutchess County that in the highest offices of leadership in the county, there are Christian people. This past Monday, I attended a prayer meeting in Mark Molinero's office where county leaders gathered and prayed over the county pled the blood of Jesus Christ over the homes, over the schools, over the businesses, over the churches and the pastors, over the people, prayed against 
the epidemics of drugs and uh, sin and Lyme disease and, you know, the things that, that, that we wrestle with and struggle with. I mean, from the, the core of what the county office represents, prayer was being showered out over Dutchess County. That's an amazing thing. That doesn't happen in most of the country and probably not in most of the counties, if any of the other counties in New York State. And I believe it's because of things like that, we enjoy a quality of life, a blessedness uh, in what we do that probably doesn't exist in a lot of other places. Now, all of that would be considered salt. Those things are salt. And so they prevent the breakdown. And thus, we're not seeing here what is being seen in some other parts of the country, like what we saw uh, going on on the West Coast. Now, when there is a state of decay, when things begin to break down, it's a sign that the salt is losing its savor. Now, sin is like bacteria, okay? Sin hasn't changed, not since the day that Adam and Eve partook of the fruit and Cain killed Abel and everything went sideways. Sin is the same. And so sin is like bacteria. And so all sin needs is the right environment. And if it has the right environment, then it's going to proliferate and everything is going to break down. It just needs the right environment. So if the salt, which Jesus says is us, is salty, then bacteria of sin is kept at bay and we continue to enjoy the blessing of God on our area, on our churches and on our lives. Now, the thing that makes salt salt, and now I'm talking to us because we are the salt of the earth is not its color, its texture, or its size, or its shape. None of those things are the defining attributes of salt. You know that now we've got this pink salt, right? It's supposed to be more saltier and have trace minerals, and it's better for you. And and my kid's like, no, I'm not eating the pink salt. I want the white salt, you know. Just don't eat the rock salt, and you'll probably be okay, (laughs) you know. But the thing that makes salt salt is not what it looks like or feels like, but rather the internal properties that make it what it is. That's what makes salt salt. And so Jesus would say in another place in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, when he told us to have grace in our lives and to be seasoned with salt. The verse might go up there, Mark chapter 9, verse 50, where Jesus said it. He says, have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. And so salt is something that comes from the inside of us. What makes us salt is not the way we dress. It's not the things that we say necessarily that come out of our mouth it's not the positions that we take well i believe in this biblical position on that none of those things make us salt what makes us salt is what's going on inside of our lives it's who we are it's our character it's the christ likeness it's allowing the spirit of god to transform us from within and make us more like jesus It's the thing that makes people notice when they're around us that there's something about our lives that's different and attractive, that that, that I like being around. There's something about you. There's a freedom. There's a graciousness. There's a non-judgmentalism. There's a, a receptivity. There's something about you that I'm drawn to you, just like people were drawn to Jesus. And that's what makes us Salt, that's its defining uh, character. Now, the potency of salt or the quality of salt, when it comes to you and I, 
how potent we are. It depends upon our values and our choices as individuals. Now, Jesus said something profound in verse 13. He said this, listen, he said, if the salt loses its savor. And what that means is that salt is not static. It's dynamic. It means that it can either be becoming more potent and saltier, or it can be becoming less potent and blander. And that it doesn't stay in the same place that it was when it just began. It's moving in one direction or the other. And so we're either becoming more salty or we're getting less salty. That means that we are either affecting our environment or we're being affected by our environment. If we're salty, then we're affecting the environment. We're being influential and people are being drawn to the things of God, or at least they're tasting the things of God because we're there. If we're being influenced by society, then that means that it's having an effect upon us and we're losing ground. And so salt changes. So here's my point, is that it isn't enough for us to say, well, things are good in Dutchess County. Things are good in the church and in the churches. And so therefore, we must be doing okay. That's the wrong look. Because where we are right now is not the right measurement for how good the quality of our salt is. But rather, the measurement is where things are going. What direction are things going? Is the culture being influenced more for Christ? Are we growing in the things of God? Are we having an effect on the people that are around us? Or are we slowly being affected by them and we're losing ground spiritually? And that really is the measurement, is the direction that we're going, not necessarily where we are. Am I being influenced or am I influencing? That's a good question. And so Jesus says that we are the salt of the earth. He also said that we are the light of the world. And so light means that not only do we have the salt, but what the salt does is that the salt gives us permission to shine. Because everybody shines in some way. Some people shine for darkness, and some people shine for light. But if we're salty, then our light has an impact because people are attracted to what we're doing, and they want to know where we're going. And so Jesus said, you're not just salt, but you are also light. You have the function of drawing others in as well. Um, just uh, one of the days in the past week, I finished um, teaching my two young boys, uh, seven and, oh gosh, eight and six. I got it. That's right. Eight and six uh, about Solomon. And we're, you know, we're going through and it's kind of, uh, you know, a liquid method of going through the Bible with them. We don't read King James line upon line, but lay on the floor and just tell them the stories. And, uh, and it's kind of fun, but we just finished Solomon. And so it's kind of nice to, to just do the overview. And as we came to the, the end of the story, I said to them this, you know, in a way that they could understand it. I said that Solomon's life really teaches us uh, two things when you boil it down to its simplest form. And that is number one is that an unprotected strength is a double weakness. An unprotected strength is a double weakness. And then the other one was that it's not enough to know the right answers but to do the right things. And that's, the two really go hand in hand because Solomon's strength, his salt, so to speak, was the wisdom that God had given to him. 
He had prayed for it and said, God, I'm going to need a lot of wisdom to lead this people because I don't know what I'm doing and they're complicated. And God said, okay, Solomon, I'm going to give you more wisdom than I've ever given to another human being, so much so that you're going to, you're going to prosper and excel in every other area of your life. And so his wisdom became his strength, but it was an unprotected strength because he didn't obey the wisdom that was given to him. He didn't follow the things that he knew were the right things to do. And here's why he didn't do it. It's because he thought that the wisdom that was given to him was unlimited and that therefore he would always be able to wise himself out of whatever situation he got into. And so if disobedience to wisdom got him into trouble, he would just call on more wisdom in order to get out of the situation, and he would just be able to carry on like that. And so he started to have this behavioral debt where he thought, well, I'm just going to keep getting out of things. But you can't outsmart God, and you can't disobey God and expect that you're going to just be able to wiggle out of it. And thus, he died, and everything that he built became nothing because he sinned against the very wisdom that he was giving out. It was an unprotected strength. Now, for you and I, we're the salt of the earth, and we also have a strength, and the strength that's been given to you and I is that we have the truth of God, we have the grace of God, and we have the favor of God. Those things he has promised to give us in our lives abundantly, and so we have his truth that gives to us the path that we're to walk. We have his grace that when we sin or when we go the wrong way or err or blow it, We have his forgiveness and his restoration so that he's constantly bringing us back and building us up. And we have his favor, which means that he keeps bringing us forward and bringing us onward. His blessing is in our lives. But an unprotected strength is a double weakness. And so what do we do as a church is that we take those things for granted, like Solomon did his wisdom, and we just think, well, I can just keep ignoring God, I can live in a prayerless state, I can live in a wordless state, and I can just keep on sinning, and God's going to just keep restoring, and keep forgiving, and he's going to keep elevating, and what we do with grace, our strength, is the same thing that Solomon did with his wisdom. We make it cheap, we take it for granted, and we squander away the good things that God wants to be doing in our lives. And that's what happens to the church. We say, well, I'll just sin and God will just forgive. And we're not realizing that in the process, we're losing our savor and we're dimming our light and our testimony is becoming less and less and less. I ask myself the question often for a long time, why was David held up as greater than Solomon? And that was a, that was a valid question that I had. You might even say, you know, if you know the two men, you might ask, Saying, yeah, why is that? Because really, when you look at the two lives, you know, Solomon did way more than David. There was more prosperity. There were more jobs. There were more territories taken. There were more battles won. The army grew. The nation expanded. I mean, there was wealth in buckets during the days of Solomon. David didn't see any of that. David had a fraction of it. But yet David in the Bible is constantly held up as being greater than Solomon, Why? What made David greater? Here's what it was. Is that David did not have the ability to do what Solomon did. He didn't have the groundwork laid. He didn't have permission or the calling of God. 
He didn't have the resources that Solomon had. He couldn't do what Solomon could do. But what David did do, listen, is that he took what he did have and he used it to elevate the next generation. He took what he had and he invested it to prepare those that would come after so that they could go further than he went. Solomon took what was given to him and he spent it all on himself. So David used what he had to bless others. Solomon used what he had to bless himself. And do you know what happened two weeks after Solomon died? The sandcastle fell. Everything that he built was divided and it began to systematically unravel. The whole thing came down. Now, the church, you and I, we function as a light. And thus, as we are salty and as we shine, what we're called to do is we're called to invest in the generation that's to come and point the way so that they then can go further than we do so that when our generation passes, things don't immediately fall apart. And so the question is, what is it that we are supposed to be doing? What is the response to this call of our function to be salt and light? And the answer is this, is that we are to know who we are, and that is that we are the salt of the earth, and then we're to be driven by what's in our hand. You say, well, what's in my hand? The Bible tells us that we are destined one day to rule and reign with Christ, that one day we will sit with him in his throne and we will have a scepter that has been given to us by him that represents something, and I have no idea what it is. But many Christians live their lives today as though they're already holding that scepter. Well, I'm ruling and reigning with Christ, and you know, I'm, I have authority in his name, and, and we kind of live in this thing like we have this, this, uh, this scepter. That's not what's in your hand. It's not a scepter. Do you know what's in your hand? It's a baton. And what a baton is, is a responsibility. It's a stewardship and a trust of something that has been given to you for the time that you are here. But one day, you're going to pass that baton onto the next generation. There's going to be a transition. And the goal is not simply to see things good while we're here, but to keep things set up in such a way that when we pass the baton to the next generation, they go even further than we did. I want to read you um, this, this uh, blog post from someone that I read occasionally on the West Coast, and it's kind of in response to some of the things that we saw in the video early on. I want you to listen to, to this. Uh, he lives in Oregon, the, the writer of this. He says, I used to live in paradise. We were the pear capital of the world with acres of orchards stretching over the hills, nestled beside forests and dotted with well-kept homes. People were kind and friendly here, open even to forgiving the sin of a California license plate. We took good care of our neighbors and took great pride in the land God gave us. It was a good place to live and to live in until you died. Those days are gone. The pear orchards have been ripped out and replaced by grapes. The grapes were ripped out and replaced with hemp and marijuana. They couldn't find enough labor to harvest the pears anymore, and the profit margin on pot is better, or it was, before everyone here grew their own. Now there's a glut of dope and there's nothing else left to grow. I'll probably live to see the land lay fallow someday. I never wanted to live that long. The authorities say we have a suicide epidemic, particularly among our youth and veterans. 
We don't report such things on the news, so it's a silent reaper we refuse to acknowledge. The drug-related crime rate is through the roof. Meth addicts will steal whatever isn't nailed down. You dare not leave your house or car unlocked. Fewer people are friendly and kind. More are fearful and angry. Paradise lost. A pastor told me yesterday that the valley just needs Jesus, and Jesus was the only hope for us to reclaim what we once had. I noted that there is a church on every other corner here, and Jesus didn't seem to be making much of an impact these days. That, he countered, was the fault of leftists and Democrats. Everyone has their own devils to blame. The devils appear to be winning. Why are we so miserable that we have to self-medicate to survive? Why isn't Jesus making more of a difference? I contend that we have lost the Jesus of Scripture and history and replaced him with boutique gods we call by his name, but who bear slight resemblance to the real God. And then he concludes by saying, what do you think? And I would take what he says one step further and say that it isn't an issue with Jesus because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He said that we are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its savor, then it is good for nothing, and it will be slowly overcome by sin. Here is what I'm trying to say, is that it is not enough for you and I to enjoy the blessing of God while we live, or even to leave the world, our, our world, better than the way it was handed to us. That's not enough, because if it fails after we go, then we had a net profit of zero. It's not enough for just to enjoy and not to prepare the generation that's to come. And so to do that, we must be getting saltier. Because the people that are watching us as we grow, they're going to do what we do, not necessarily what we say. I took this picture. Uh, actually, I didn't take this picture. I posted this picture. My daughter took this picture. It's going to go up there. That is the odometer in my car. She was driving my car when it hit the milestone of 100,000 miles. And so she took her phone out, probably while she was driving. <laughs> and she snapped a picture of the odometer. And I saw, I saw the photograph, and, and, and I marveled at it. And, and here's why I marveled at it. Because my daughter could care less about cars, miles, odometers, steering wheels. She doesn't care about any of these things. Yet she took a picture of the odometer, and it made me marvel. You know why? Because that is a santo thing, and she doesn't even know it. My father would do that in every one of his cars as it would hit the milestones. He would snap photographs. My brother does it, and he sends the text messages to me and my dad and, and anybody else. I have done it, but not since I was saved, okay? Because <laughs> I, really, I don't care anymore, and they just burn out the cars, you know? So when she did that, I, I said, oh, my goodness. She has not been taught this action, and yet she is doing it. And it struck me. It's like, they do what we do, whether they see it or not. They do what we do, whether they see it or not. Let those words sink in. Is that the generation that has their eyes on you right now is not going to do what you say. They're not going to do what you proclaim. They're going to do what you do. And therefore, if you're not becoming saltier, then that is what's being sown into their hearts, and the trajectory of their lives is going to continue the downward direction that your 
degree of potency is going. We must pass on what we've been given. If we are prayerless, if we are wordless, if we have a retirement mentality in the things of God, if we complain about the generation that's to come rather than inspire that generation to go forward, then we are going to lose. And if the world falls apart after we leave, listen carefully, if the world, our world, falls apart after we leave, it's not the devil's fault, it's not the politician's fault, it's not sin's fault, it's the salt's fault. Because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And we have a responsibility to take what's been handed to us and by the power of the Spirit of God to pass it on to those that are now looking to us and that will come after us. Jesus said that herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and that your fruit should what? Remain. And what that means is that we do not just bear fruit, we also bear seeds. And those seeds must be sown. I think of the verse in Malachi, the last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. The prophet says this. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to the fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And it is our responsibility to carry salt within ourselves and to be light in such a way that our hearts are not just inclined to enjoy what's been handed to us and not to pass it on. Our hearts, we are the fathers. If you're in this room, you are the fathers right now. And that must be part of what we do is to raise up the generation that's to come and to send them further than we ourselves go. If you are in the, in the shot of my voice right now and you say, well, I'm not really at that point yet where I'm a father, then your responsibility is to put your eyes on the fathers and say, point me in the right direction. Take me to this God who's impacted your life and impart to me the things that he has given to you and give to me the wisdom that I might stand upon your shoulders. What if the size of your scepter in eternity when you one day stand before him in glory is measured by a combination of both what you accomplished in your lifetime and what happened right after you left. Would that change the size of some of our scepters? I think perhaps might it would. I, it might. We have it very good here in Dutchess County. We, live, we lead blessed and abundant lives. It's something that God has given. But listen, we are on a trajectory. And if we continue to just consume what God has given without giving heed to investing it in the generation that's to come. I wonder this fall if some of us will go apple picking on the orchards, we'll go to Barton or Dubois or one of the many other places that we go and we harvest fruit in the fall. And we see the beautiful hills and landscapes of Dutchess County with the well-kept homes dotting the hills. And we walk the rail trail with the friendly people. I walked the rail trail this morning. Every single person that I passed, smiled at me and said hi. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. I walked down the hall tonight just before church and there was a line of people trying to get in to a Wana club and Bible study. That's unbelievable. But I wonder if the kids, as we hold their hand and as we take apples from the tree, I wonder if one day they will be the bloggers that will say, this place was once paradise. 
These hills were dotted with apple trees. It was the most amazing place to grow up and to live. But now those apple trees have been ripped out, replaced by something. That was ripped out, replaced by something. The homes are not what they were. The people are not what they were. And unfortunately, what used to be the beauty of the United States of America, I now call an embarrassment. And that may not happen in our lifetime. But the things that we do today directly affect what will happen tomorrow. Do you know in the, in the 2004, the 2008, and the 2012 Olympic Games, three consecutive Olympics, the men's 400-meter relay team was highly favored to win. They were the fastest. They were the cleanest. They were the ones that were favored in each of those Olympics, and yet they lost three times in a row. Do you know why? Because they failed in the exchange zone. They fumbled in passing the baton from one runner to the next. And because they weren't able to pass the baton, which should have been an easy gold, they watched it slip out of their hands three times. You know what the key to a proper exchange is when you're running relays? It's that the person who's about to take the baton is running the same speed as the one who's handing it off. And that's our responsibility as the church to prepare the generation that's to come so that when we say goodbye, they know fully what's been given to them and that they're able then to steward it. Are you a David or are you a Solomon? Are you taking what's been given and using it to prop up who's to come? Or is it, hey, this is great. I'm just going to consume it on myself. You are here. But tomorrow you're going to be somewhere where you're going to say, how did I get here? And the word of the Lord to you tonight is take what's been given. Take what we have and appreciate it. And don't just say, God, you're so good to me. Say, God, what am I to do with what I've been given? And how can I invest it in the generation that's to come? Father, I thank you tonight, Lord, for your your word. I thank you, Lord, for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for your uh, grace. And, and Lord, tonight we reflect on all that we've been given and all that we have, and, and we have a spirit of gratitude. Lord, thank you for what you've given. But Lord, we also recognize that there is a responsibility that comes with us. And you called us, Lord, to be salt. You called us to be light. And Father, I, I pray that tonight there would be maybe a glimpse that you would give to us of what things look like 10 years from now for us, for our families, for our kids. God, that you would give us a glimpse of what our society would look like right after we pass away and no longer carry this light, when the churches no longer maybe have the strength of your word or when new elected officials come in that give no heed to praying for the citizens of their county. I I pray, Lord, tonight that you would give to us a realization that we enjoy something that we have the authority to pass on. We also have the ability to squander away. And that, Lord, tonight you would help us that if adjustments need to be made, if an assessment needs to be taken of where we're at, if behavioral things need to be adjusted in us to see what's to come, that, Lord, you would give us a vision for our kids, that you'd give us a vision for our area and for our nation that's greater than just us. And, Lord, that we would see what could be, what can be, what you want to use us to do. And so I ask tonight that, Spirit of God, you would turn the hearts of us fathers towards our children. God, that you would give us wisdom and insight and vision and revelation. 
that you would give us a supernatural love for them to be able to reach into their existence, into their world, and not resist it and complain about it, but to grab a hold of their hearts, that you would turn our hearts towards them and their hearts towards us. We pray for the coming generation, God, that you would grab a hold of them, that there would be a conviction that would come upon them that you're real, that your truth is real, that your ways are right. Lord, that they would have a vision for their own lives and for their gifts and for their calling. And Lord, that this wouldn't be something that stops with us, but we would just be the beginning. That we would be the gatherers of materials that they might go further than we ever could. So we're asking you tonight, Lord, as we thank you for what we have, that you would move us to use it in the way that brings you glory and lasting fruit. I pray for anyone here tonight, Lord, that is behaving in a way that is killing the salt or sowing bad testimony. Give us grace. Restore us, O Lord. Breathe life into us. Enliven us. I pray that prayer meetings would be birthed out of the message that's been given tonight. I pray that ventures in ministry would be birthed out of what we're hearing and receiving. Pray that the future would change because of things that you're sowing into our hearts even now. Would you hear our prayer, Lord? Would you confirm your word in the days following? We ask these things tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we? Thanks for joining us for the Pastor Nick Santo podcast. To regularly receive these teachings, be sure to subscribe so you can get it automatically when it's released. If you find this material helpful, please share it and help us get the message of Jesus out to others. We also appreciate your feedback, so if you would, leave us a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, or email us at pastor.nickpc at gmail.com. Until next time, may you continue to love, learn, and live the way of Jesus.